listening to the doctrinal cassette series of the Church of God Seventh Day, produced by the Media Outreach Agency. This doctrinal study tape is entitled, Does Man Possess Immortality? And our speaker is Elder Ray Straub. The belief that man has an immortal soul is widespread. There are numerous versions of this teaching. Some suggest that spirits are eternal. They come to earth to inhabit a human body and leave the body at death to return to wherever eternal spirits live. Others believe in reincarnation. The spirit in us has lived in lives previously and will inhabit other forms after our body dies. An immortal spirit leaves one mortal being at death and seeks to inhabit another. Traditional Christianity teaches that man comes into this earth with an immortal soul. His body, of course, is subject to death, and when that happens, the soul exits the body and goes to its eternal destiny, that destiny being either bliss with God or torment in hell with the devil and his company. Where do these teachings originate? Is it really true that man possesses immortality? Does the Bible teach that man has an immortal soul? This study will be focusing on the last of these questions. Does the Bible teach that man has an immortal soul? In the process of the study, we will be commenting on the other two questions about the origin of the idea of man's immortality and whether or not we possess it. The Old Testament teaches nothing about earthly man's having immortality. To the contrary, the Old Testament teaches that when a man dies, he's dead. Man lives because God affords him the privilege. That's the way it was in the beginning. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Genesis 2, 7. Much emphasis has been placed on the word soul, as found in the King James Version. It was concluded that when God breathed life into the human form he had made, he gave that form a living soul. The New International Version, among others, ends this verse, Genesis 2-7, by stating, man became a living being. This justifiable change in wording takes the emphasis off the word soul and places it where it belongs, on the word living. Man became a living soul or a living being. The change was not the insertion of a soul that was immortal, but the change was from lifelessness to viability, to life. The most literal, hence the most objective interpretation we can give this verse, is that God gave life to the form he created. Man became a living being. This process is reversed when man dies. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12.7 The word spirit in this context means breath, associated with the movement of air. I'll quote two additional verses from the Psalms to confirm this interpretation. First, Psalm 104.29 Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And Psalm 146, 4. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. 
In that very day his thoughts perish. Comparing Genesis 2-7 with Ecclesiastes 12-7, we note that when the body of man was formed, God gave him breath and the ability to breathe it, enabling him to live. At death, this breath, with its ability to live, returns to God, and the body, originally made of dust, returns to the earth. Both of these verses contain no comment about immortality. Were one to read these, he could only conclude that God gives life and he takes it back at man's decease. There is significant additional evidence indicating that man does not possess immortality. Note, for instance, Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 6. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. This passage describes a loss of consciousness at death. Ecclesiastes 3.18 and forward informs us that at death both humans and animals have the same destiny. I read this passage from the New International Version. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. To be sure, this passage reflects some disconsolate writing, but it describes accurately the human destiny without any allusion to any person's immortality. Job's belief of his fate was in agreement. He looked forward to immortality, but he knew it would not come at his death. So man lieth down, said Job, and riseth not, till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. O oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou shouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldst appoint a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Job 14, 12-15 Specifically, is the soul mortal? Does the Old Testament answer this question? The answer is yes. Reading from Ezekiel 18:4, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Verse 20 repeats, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The evidence we read from the Old Testament informs us that this part of the Bible, at least, teaches that man is mortal. When he dies, he ceases to exist. No form of consciousness survives the demise of the body. At death, the total person expires. Only knowledge and memories of those who have died linger in the lives of the living. 
We are ready to move to the New Testament for further information about whether or not man possesses immortality. Some understand that New Testament teachings progress from those of the former testament. They claim that the message of Christianity carries the message regarding the immortality of the human soul. Before going directly into the New Testament teachings to learn about human immortality, I want to interject some information about a famous philosopher. His name was Plato. He lived from 427 to 347 B.C. He was a protege student of Socrates and a teacher of Aristotle. These three comprise the greatest philosophers the world has known. Part of volumes of the work of Plato produced uh, some dialogues similar to plays in which he put words into the mouth of Socrates whom he revered. Because his writings were characteristically congenial, in addition to being profound, they found warm reception among interpreters of Christian doctrine, particularly around Alexandria. He was regarded by some to be a Christian before Christ. Included in Plato's writings were statements he attributed to Socrates, declaring his late teacher's immortality. Four reasons were given why Socrates' immortal soul survived his body at his death. This concept found its way into Christian theology, but not until some years after the New Testament had been written. Platonic influence is not found in the writings of the Bible, but it is found in the interpretation of passages of Scripture. It is true that the New Testament makes reference to the tripartite nature of man, as in 1 Thessalonians 5:23b, which reads, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, only one of these three parts of the human being is ever described as being eternal. I refer to spirit, which identifies the breath of life God bestows and retrieves. Those who find this interpretation to be in question may prefer to identify spirit here as a person's characteristic mental disposition or degree of vivacity. There's no real reason to disagree with either viewpoint. The latter conclusion is okay, because that kind of spirit survives only in the memories of those who live. It should be pointed out that the New Testament is not consistent in its description of the tripartite person. Matthew 28.10 describes us as having soul and body. Hebrews 4.12 suggests that we are comprised of soul and spirit just those two. What concerns us is whether man inherently possesses an immortal soul. I will present four reasons why humanity does not have immortality. Each of these proposals have biblical support. Please note them carefully. First, the Bible describes death as a sleep. Sleep is a non-conscious state, proposing a concept that the antithesis of immortality is sleep. John 11 tells the story of the death and resurrection of Lazarus. The narrative begins by telling of messengers who were sent to Jesus, informing him that his friend was seriously ill. Despite the urgency of the message, Jesus remained in the distant locality for two additional days. 
The master then informed his disciple that they would go to Judea because, quote, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, close quote. That's verse 11 of John 11. The disciples regarded sleep to be a sign of regenerating health. Jesus then announced quite plainly that Lazarus had died. No passage in the Bible more clearly identifies death as a sleep. Daniel of the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 2, states, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Paul writes, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Several other verses could be cited to pile on evidence that the Bible regards death to be a non-conscious state similar to sleep. But we will forego the obvious to save time. The second reason humans do not possess immortality is this. Immortality precludes a resurrection. The Bible teaches there will be a resurrection. Hence, man cannot be immortal. Were he immortal, he would be incapable of dying, so he could not be resurrected. By definition, that which lives cannot be resurrected. Anyone who insists he has an immortal soul can hardly anticipate a resurrection. I've already presented passages that mention the resurrection. I will read more of them as we progress in our study. To underscore the hope of a resurrection, I will read one passage from John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I believe in the resurrection. It's a basic and clear teaching of Scripture. Since I must die in order to be resurrected, I know that I do not now have immortality. Reason number three. Judgment takes place at the parousia, the coming, arrival, and presence of Jesus. Judgment does not take place when a person dies. The belief that an immortal soul leaves the body at death to go to heaven or hell concludes that judgment takes place when a person dies. It must, in order for the soul to know which direction to go to continue its immortal existence after the body's demise. It must be acknowledged that the belief that man has an immortal soul is a belief that judgment takes place at death. The Bible teaches that judgment takes place at Jesus' second coming. Please note the following passages which provide evidence substantiating this assertion. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.1 The description of the return of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4.15-17 is also supportive. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This passage speaks of a resurrection mentioned in my previous reason, and it informs us that only those who died as members of God's family will resurrect at Jesus' second coming. Obviously, the determination of who is righteous and worthy to be part in this resurrection is a judgment process. This adjudication separates the righteous from the unworthy. It takes place when Jesus returns. The 25th chapter of Matthew contains three parables. Each deals with judgment. All three stories mention judgment in connection with an event that symbolizes the parousia. Let's review them. The first parable teaches that preparation for Jesus' return must be made before he arrives. This lesson is learned from the parable of the ten virgins. In this story, judgment took place when the bridegroom arrived. Before that, all anticipated and all waited. No difference between them was noted until the arrival of the bridegroom. It was his coming that separated the wise virgins from the foolish. The second parable teaches us that we will be judged on the use we make of our God-given resources. This illustration of the talents tells us of an accounting which takes place after the man returns from a journey to a far country. The third of these parables, that of the sheep and the goats, begins, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 31-34. While it is acknowledged that these descriptions of judgment involve those who are alive at the parousia, this passage harmonizes with 2 Timothy 4.1, which states that both the living, or the quick, and the dead will be judged at Jesus' appearing and his kingdom. Both the righteous and the wicked die alike. Both go to the grave. Both remain in a non-conscious state, as in a sleep. They will not be judged until Jesus returns. This concludes side one of our study, Does Man Possess Immortality? This study will continue on side two. Reason number four. The righteous receive immortality at the resurrection. I read from 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Looking forward to receiving immortality gives evidence that we are mortal now. We do not now have immortality. Let's recap the four points which indicate that man does not now possess immortality, that he is not an immortal soul. First, death is described as a sleep, a non-conscious state. Secondly, there will be a resurrection which can only be experienced by those who are dead. Thirdly, the Bible teaches that humans are judged when Jesus returns, not when they die. Fourth, immortality is not an inherent part of man. Immortality is bestowed on the righteous at the parousia. Plato's assertion that man is immortal is the product of this Grecian's intelligent imaginings. It is not biblical. It will be interesting to examine a passage of Scripture which demonstrates how Plato's philosophy has influenced the interpretation of parts of the Bible. I refer specifically to 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10. This reading will be from the New International Version, which is faithful to the King James rendition. I read it only to provide more contemporary wording. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It would appear that Plato's philosophy has seriously confounded our interpretation of this passage. Hypothesizing that man has an immortal soul, one may conclude from Paul's writings here that he speaks of a life that survives the demise of the body. It suggests that when we die, only our physical body, our tent, is destroyed, but that we go on to be with the Lord. This interpretation, which seems an obvious one, 
has irreconcilable conflicts with the context of this passage. Let's construct it carefully. Doing so, we will find that it will harmonize with the substantial amount of evidence we have already cited showing that man does not possess an immortal soul. First of all, it will be helpful to state the obvious. Paul's reference to a tent or tabernacle, as in the King James Version, is speaking of our physical bodies. The tent or tabernacle we live in is the body in which we now exist. He speaks of himself as a person apart from his physical body in this passage. Secondly, and this is important, he speaks of being clothed with two different kinds of dwelling places. One is the tent that we presently inhabit. The second is the building or house which is not built with human hands. One or the other is required in order to be clothed. Paul desires to be clothed with the heavenly. He has no desire to be unclothed. Verse 4 says it plainly. We do not wish to be unclothed. When do we receive our heavenly body? I read from 1 Corinthians 15, 39 and 40. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Continuing with verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Having previously given this description of the resurrection with its change in bodies, there is no wonder that Paul was anxiously awaiting his new house or building made in the heavens without human hands. The reference makes it clear that the new body will be received at the resurrection. The present body is sown at death. The new one is received when Jesus returns. If Paul must wear either his earthly physical body or the awaiting heavenly or celestial body in order to be clothed, how will he be clothed during the intermediate state? After he leaves his physical body, and before he receives his heavenly one. In other words, Paul died nearly 2,000 years ago. He no longer has his earthly tent. Since Jesus has not come and the resurrection has not taken place, he does not yet have his celestial body. How then is he now clothed? Is there not a likelihood that if Paul now exists, he is indeed unclothed? This is precisely what he did not want. It may also be noted that in view of the hope of having this building made in the heavens, Paul advises that we make it our goal to please him because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Having already read that judgment takes place when Jesus returns, why would saints 
who have already spent centuries in heaven with the Lord be brought to judgment. This passage is easily understood and harmonized when Platonic philosophy is set aside. There is no intermediate state. Paul speaks of his subjective experiences. He knows that he will not be conscious during the time that he waits in the grave for the second coming of Jesus. In his own experience, he will close his eyes at death and will experience no more until awakened in the resurrection. In his own consciousness, his death and resurrection follow each other with no conscious time lapse. One experience follows the other immediately. It is from this perspective only that Paul can pass from his earthly tent to his heavenly house without being found naked. When he writes about being with the Lord, he speaks from his knowledge that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Thereafter they will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Does man possess an immortal soul? The Bible's answer is no. The Old Testament indicates that when people die, they cease to be. The New Testament likewise teaches that those who die go to a non-conscious state to await resurrection and judgment. If they are righteous, they receive immortality when Jesus, our Lord and coming King, returns. Is this discovery disappointing? Not at all. What are the advantages of the intermediate state? Plato deeply admired Socrates and found separation by death intolerable. Perhaps we find the intermediate state comforting because it attempts to persuade us that death is not really death, it is merely a transition. The sting of death is not felt by the dead, but by the living. Discomfort and grief come because of separation. Believing in some imaginary intermediate state for unclothed immortal souls does not ease the pain of separation. To anticipate existing in the intermediate state is hardly comforting. What value is there to experience this veil of tears during a lifetime only to observe the same oppression for countless decades following? Bliss is as near to the non-conscious as it is to the supposedly conscious. When our lifespan ends, we will lose consciousness. In the silence of sleep, we will await the glorious resurrection to be clothed with a celestial body and to be with Jesus forever. There's nothing wrong with that. Our doctrinal study entitled, Does Man Possess Immortality? The doctrinal cassette series of The Church of God's Seventh Day is a presentation of the Media Outreach Agency.